welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Ed Peavy. Ed worked on the Hill briefly and worked in several campaigns before launching his own Democratic direct mail firm, Mission Control, a firm which has now grown into one of the most successful political consulting firms on either side of the aisle. Ed has worked on races of all sizes, including electing numerous senators and working in presidential races. And Ed is just one of the good people in the business with a lot of great advice and insight for anyone interested in politics. Ed Peavy, tell me how you grew up. I grew up uh, right out, actually right outside of D.C. in Bethesda, right inside the Beltway. I went to high school in D.C., a school that it, at the time was Catholic military. It's definitely a unique way to go to high school. My uh, parents were, uh, particularly my mother was very, she worked in nonprofits, but very politically active. Politics was a big part of everyday conversation at the house. Where I grew up on a bunch of the streets, there were a few houses that were owned by embassies. Down the block, there was uh, one that was owned by the State Department that this is the late 70s. And the one of the uh, senior people from the Iranian embassy was there when the hostages happened. I think there was another kid on my bus whose father was actually a, was one of the uh, hostages. Did a couple minor high school internships on the Hill for a week or two, uh, and then definitely did some in college. Aside from just proximity to D.C., what are some of your earlier political memories as a kid getting his wits about him? My mother is a, was a very staunch Democrat. My father was at the time kind of a what would have been a moderate Gerald Ford, Nelson Rockefeller Republican, now, now no longer, even really since Reagan, not really a Republican anymore. You know, I remember clearly the Reagan, Carter, Anderson race. I, I mean, I guess I was like 10 or 12 at the time. So, you know, wasn't that old. You, know, you go look at what happened. And it obviously was not close. I always remember it as actually being a real close race and, you know, how important it was. And, you know, the stakes, particularly of how bad Reagan would be, were really clear. Obviously, whatever he won, 45 states, and it wasn't close at all. So, I, that was the one that I remember the most. I don't really remember the more local races. We had, you know, our congresswoman was Connie Morella, who was, you know, an old school, uh, she actually lived right around the corner, but she was like an old school, again, very moderate, would be a Democrat today. Your kid growing up in D.C., you say at least your mom is working in something and in nonprofits that is at least politically adjacent. Was it just natural? Was it inevitable that you would wind up yourself working in politics? Is that always what you had assumed? Or how did that happen? Yeah, it always is what I assumed. So I, I grew up in D.C. and then went to college out in uh, northwestern Pennsylvania and immediately, you know, went and immediately started a political science degree and never looked back. And, you know, at that point, did some internships, did some volunteering on campaign. Where, where I was was a pretty Republican area. So I think back then, particularly in college, I always more envisioning myself working on the Hill and in government rather than what, you know, rather than campaigns and politics. And that's what I did. So I went to college for four years, again, had some internships, a couple on the Hill, and really even at that point thought that's what I wanted to do. Eventually graduated, immediately went to work on the Hill. I got an internship on the House Foreign Affairs Committee it was right as Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, right? So it was before the war, but, you know, at the crisis. So it's like the height of what's going on at the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And it just wasn't for me. Even at that exciting level, 
it didn't, you know, to me, you know, like I was interested in the, the news part of it, but the policy part of it just wasn't my thing. And so I uh, took a break and went and did like was a volunteer for the D trip at a campaign in Maine for a month. And at that point, I was like, oh, that's where I want to go. Any of the times you were working on the Hill in any, in any capacity, did you find yourself crossing paths with formidable figures or interesting moments? My mother had grown up in Connecticut and had been and worked actually on campaigns back when I was a tiny kid with uh, Sam Gadenson, who eventually became a congressman from the eastern part of Connecticut. Uh, Sam, who later was famous for winning his seat by eight votes in the early 90s. He was the, the main member who I met. But like I said, I'd known him most of my life. When I was there, it, look, it, we all talk about it. The times were different, right? You had, I think Claude Pepper might still have been in office. Dante Fussell. These guys had been in Congress since the 50s and 60s and truly bipartisan. They truly like they had friends on the other side. They could hang out together. A couple of years later, I, I had worked for a guy named Alan Wheat, who was congressman in Missouri. He was also kind of he had been there 10 years, but he had taken over for Dick Bowling, who was another one of these like legendary old congressmen. So in my opinion, the ending of the era of the last hundred years of American history of the way we governed, you know, slowly moving to what we're seeing today. It does feel like that that 80s era uh, was sort of the turning point there, sort of a slow motion uh, turning point from that era, uh, at least in the, on the House side and Senate side in terms of a little bit more collegial, a little bit more functional to to the politics, to the starting of the politics that we know today with the, the Jim Wright uh, situation and Gingrich and snowballed beyond there. You mentioned uh, doing a stint in Maine for the DCCC just for a very short time, but even in that short time, realizing that that is what you'd been looking for. Talk to me a little bit about what that was like and what you think, what itch that was scratching for you that maybe you didn't even know was there. I, I literally spent a month uh, in Portland, great city, by the way, that everyone should spend time in. It was an open seat because the Cong the current congressman, who I think was Jim Brennan, was running for governor against the current governor then who was married to Olympia Snow. So it was an open seat for his seat. The Democrat was a guy named Tom Andrews. He was a compelling activist kind of guy. Been, you know, very much still is very much in like the peace movement. So it was a very field-driven campaign. The guy who was the field director is a longtime man who I'm still friends with, a guy named Joe Cowie. It was a very, you know, kind of grassroots-driven campaign. And so did a lot of field stuff. Definitely a different era. I, I still remember spending the day canvassing and then coming back with like printed green bar and having to write, you know, one, two on the thing as, a, as opposed to the handheld apps we have today. The thrill of working all day, doing different things. I didn't even hate the canvassing as much as I probably thought I would. And then, you know, look, I, I think you'll find that most people who work in politics have two things that they really, one, they really care about making a difference in the issues, really also care about winning. I mean, not that people on the Hill don't care about winning, but the com combination of winning and policy is what makes people, I think, move to the, the campaign side of it. And that was, I mean, it was a campaign that won, which was great, even though I think we lost both the governor's race and maybe even the Senate race that year in Maine. You know, being on a winning campaign was a good way to start. Couldn't wait to get on another campaign. A few months later, got put on a special election in Massachusetts. I haven't done anything other than campaigns since 
really get bit by the campaign bug uh, at that point. And then a few years later, you find yourself working uh, for a consulting firm. And then a few years after that, starting your own consulting firm. But in your time as this itinerant campaign worker, I know you worked in Pennsylvania for, for Harris Wofford. Is there a race or two that felt like an inflection point for you as a campaign operative that maybe was the most significant in your development? It's hard not to say why. On Wofford, I was doing fundraising plenty of people who, who worked on Wofford who are still in politics today. But, you know, Carville, and you started your podcast with Begala. Begala was actually the day-to-day campaign manager. Carville was what essentially was the general consultant, even though they were a partnership deal. You know, they were fun. You know, you could start a campaign working for cooler, better people, right, who, who knew what they were doing, but also, you know, really kind of gave you the inspiration to these 20 other yeah. days. Well, let's, well, let's camp out there for just a second. I mean, you know, Carville Begala are these icons. You're, you're catching them. This is the 91 special election. You're catching them before they have burst onto the, the national political scene. This is before the Clinton 92 race, of course. Or tell us a little bit about the, the Paul Begala and, and James Carville of, of 1991 that you saw up close. If there was one downside about my experience on Wofford, I was on the fundraising team and I had gone to school in Western Pennsylvania. So I got hired and then shipped out to Western Pennsylvania to do fundraising in the Pittsburgh area. So where the campaign was based in Philly. So the downside for me was I was one of the first people hired, but I was one of the few people for most of the campaign who didn't get to interact with them on a daily basis. Whereas most of the, even the fundraising staff was in Philly. So with that caveat, Wofford, we were running against a guy named Dick Thornburg, who was the sitting U.S. Attorney General and the two-term governor. And I was a kid, so I wasn't really in the polling. But, you know, he had a 40-point lead. I, I think he was like 65-20 in terms of favorables. Maybe the most popular person in the state of Pennsylvania. One of the most hopeless races on paper you could ever do. And we obviously won. And James is famous for calling it the upset landslide. The rarest thing in politics, the upset landslide. What I do remember is you never talk to them and think there wasn't a path. Again, I was doing fundraising. You talk to donors on top of all the other things. Thornburg was from Pittsburgh. So everyone that I'm talking to on behalf of Wofford, even if they're Democrats, you know, thought this was hopeless. Those two guys, like they saw a path early on. Subsequently, I learned more about kind of the strategy of the campaign. It was very clear from what they were looking at that there was a path. But they really made you believe there was always a path. But I do, like, I remember, like, it was 1991, so we didn't have, you know, you didn't have, I don't we might have had a fax machine. You had to wait up to midnight when the Post-Gazette was doing a public poll. Then you had to go get the poll and call them. It was a poll where we had gone from, like, 40 to 10, but the Post-Gazette put a headline, like, Thornburg has big lead. So I remember calling headquarters and essentially getting yelled at because the Post-Gazette had a terrible headline to what was, you know, the, the best poll we could have asked for. At, at 12.30 at night, getting yelled at it. What I mainly remember is they saw a path and they made you, even without telling you exactly what that path was, they made you believe. And Harris Wofford, who was one of the more amazing people, you know, who's ever lived. Gandhi and Martin Luther King, the Peace Corps. Like he just had this life that just was beyond anything you could imagine. Salt of the earth, nice guy, easy to be around. And just watching the change every time he came to Pittsburgh where... For four months, no one knew who he was, no one cared. Then you got small crowds, and then you could barely move the guy around as everyone wanted to talk to him. Look, obviously winning the campaign, coming from 40 points down, beating the icon, 
and being really the moment that switched it to what became the 1992 campaign. I mean, we're talking about Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. I know you spent time in uh, Missouri and I think the UP in Michigan. Uh, you know, we don't have to go through, through each of those. But as you were bouncing around from race to race in the 90s, how were you thinking about the races you were taking? Was there some plan that you had in mind? Was it just sort of the randomness of what was available? I came off Wofford, literally been out of college for a year and ended up finding a way to somehow finding a way to go manage a campaign. A lot of Team Wofford went to the Clinton campaign. Few went to other presidentials because, you know, presidentials were not two years back then. So in November of 1991 is when, I mean, I think Bill Clinton got in after the Wofford win. So people were starting to go to those campaigns. Uh, I definitely would, wanted to try to get something with more responsibility. So look for options and, and found, found something if there was guidance there back then, there, the DNC had a really good training program that were really good at checking in on young managers and trying to find them places to land. So I took some advice from them and met a few consultants along the way who I liked and trusted and kind of took their advice to heart. As I, I definitely did not have a plan. You always think at the end things work out. I do think after Wofford, when I saw there was an opportunity I could manage, I wanted to go for that. You managed congressional races. You managed a governor's race in 94. Is that right? So you've managed m multiple races. Uh, and since before then, since then, you've been part of campaigns, operations. You've seen, what, dozens, hundreds of managers. Uh, do you have thoughts or the Ed PV best practices on what separates a good campaign manager from the pack? Uh, yeah, and, and be clear enough, I probably wasn't what I would now consider a good campaign manager, but so be it. Look, you know, good campaign managers know where everything is at every time. There is nothing that can beat being organized on top of things and paying attention to all the moving parts. Anyone who has those kind of combinations of skills tended to be a good manager. These are things that I know now that I, not, not that I was completely disorganized, but these are things that I know now that would have been better to know back. The odd thing is when you started on a campaign with Carville and Gala, who are you know, really known for being smart strategists. And that is not always what, you know, we're looking for in a manager, right? It would be great to have a smart brain, but it doesn't help if you're not on top of all this. In retrospect, do you think that you were doing something, whether you knew it or not, during these campaigns that was setting you up to be successful once you went into business for yourself? I mean, look, networking, it becomes a huge part of politics. Consult. I'm sure it's a huge part of every business. And having a network of people to know what races are there, what races are hiring, and to recommend you, particularly when you're starting off and you don't have. And again, I will go to it. I started at a firm, but even then, you need to build up credibility over time and having people who vouch for you is important. So I definitely met a lot of people, some of whom I still keep in touch with. The first person to hire me is a guy named Martin Hamburger who is still a TV guy, still operating today, so I talk to him all the time. People like Steve Murphy, these are the people who I met early on who still stay in touch. Um, and look, I, I really, and still today, I really spent the time to try to learn, pay attention to what was happening strategically, what was happening polling, what was working, what was not. Even back then when things were harder and took longer, trying to pay attention to the things that we thought were working and what was coming makes you a better consultant you always have to evolve. I mean, the world is much different than it was even 20 years ago. And if you don't evolve with it, you couldn't do your job even remotely as well.
After that 94 race, you find yourself joining a direct mail firm. Can you talk a little bit about your thought process, both in terms of where you ended up, but also sort of what you were looking to do? You could have stayed on the road and managed campaigns. You could have tried to look in the committee world. How were you thinking about what you were looking to do? So uh, the, the biggest thing is that I had met my now wife of 25 years, and she had a daughter, Bridget, uh, already, and we had actually just had our son. At this point, we have two kids. It wasn't a great lifestyle. I couldn't live together. Either her raising the kid, you know, well, it left her with the kids and then coming to visit me on weekends and stuff. It wasn't a good lifestyle. At the time, I was working with a mail firm. It was called Direct Response, which is in Connecticut, and they offered me a job as essentially account exec, could get off the road hopefully forever and move into a house and have a job and continue to work in politics. So that was obviously by far the biggest driving force. And I had worked with them on a couple races that so knew them well enough. And was there something, was it just sort of right place, right time in terms of a direct mail being where you landed? Could you just have easily you know, landed at a media firm or a polling firm or something else? I mean, obviously you've thrived, we know now, but at that time, was there something specific that drew you to mail? I mean, clearly every child grows up dreaming of doing direct mail, right? Like uh, people throwing out their hard-earned work within five seconds of getting it. Uh, no, I mean, look, be clear. I wanted to work in consultant. It was the offer I got. And I'm glad because I actually truly enjoy it. But at, at the time, the, the offer I had, so I jumped in. Within what, three or four years, you're starting uh, mission control. You're starting your own firm. It's a pretty ambitious thing to do. What was your thinking in terms of branching out and starting your own firm from scratch? This would definitely be credit to my wife for pushing this along and not only making it possible, but uh, but showing me that this made far more sense of what's good. So when I was at Direct Response, which I think I was at for maybe five years, I joined, there was another partner who did politics, and then there was another partner who did kind of corporate stuff. As I kind of grew, the other partner who did politics took kind of a backseat and actually then left. I was then married to this other guy who I didn't really know. And was involved in politics and definitely wasn't worth staying in business with. During that time, I had been involved in a few big wins, getting Jim Maloney, who won a big house seat in what was Western Connecticut, Dennis Moore, who was a congressman for a long time in the Kansas City area, a few others. Famously, Anthony Weiner was one of my bigger early wins. It turns out to have played a big role uh, for the next 20 years. So had built up enough of a reputation business that it was definitely time to go. So uh, we are literally... I think of just a couple of weeks from the 20th anniversary of the start of Mission Control. The hardest thing in consulting is you, you just never know if you're going to, you know, if when you're doing campaigns, you know, you have to raise money. But when you're doing business, you have to make enough money to have a staff to be able to, you know, not just have your own income, but to, you know, have an operation to pay artists, to pay staff. So, you know, and that's always a scary thing. You just never know what's going to come together. So I left. Luckily, I left in a year where we had some good clients. They all, you know, they all stayed with me. And then we immediately got, once we started, we immediately got new clients. Two of us who left, uh, three of us who left, one of them, Adnan Muslim, who was my partner for a long time. It is now a very friendly competitor. We were together for 15, 16 years. One of the, the first people we hired is our, our director today, who's been with us the entire time. We got in and immediately started getting business and kind of never went back. And what does mission control mean? What's, what's that oh, about? This is the credit goes to my old former partner who came up with it. If you watch the movie Apollo 13, there's a great scene in the movie. You have to remember the movie, but the problem was the oxygen scrubber. And 
it was broken. And if you remember, it was, they had to find a way to put a square peg in a round hole. There were two parts to it. And one of them used square pegs and one of them used round pegs. And they get all the engineers into a room and they dump out everything they have in the shuttle and said, you have to be able to create a round peg from a square hole using only these tools. And we took that as a perfect analogy of what we do, which is here's dumped on the table. Here's what you have to do to build a campaign. Take it and build a campaign. That's where the name came from. Wanted to do something different in terms of names at the time anyway. And it seemed like a good analogy. No, I've been wondering that in the back of my mind for 13 years. So a good opportunity to get to. Definitely got to go back and watch the scene. You, You, as somebody else who works in politics, will ultimately say, oh, yeah, that's what I did. In terms of starting a business, running a business, managing a business in those early years, what do you wish you'd done differently or what do you wish you had known? I say this to people who are starting businesses now, who who I'm friends with when they come to me for advice too. There are a couple of things. One, you would never know when you're starting a business because it's all fear. The truth is what I wish I knew is how well we would have started out and probably would have hired more people and built an operation that made it so myself, Adnan, you know, our artists didn't have to work till four o'clock in the morning every night because, you know, we were worried about payroll. So the, the bigger thing is, if you can see a path, have some confidence, everyone shouldn't go out and start a business and hire 30 people. But if you see a, you're going to get some clients and stuff, invest in yourself and have some faith that it's going to work. We started in a, in a way that we got good clients. You know, I'm sure we got lucky and got some big wins early on. Uh, I would take credit for it because I'm a consultant. You know, in our first year, we won a whole bunch of races. The story I remember most is we had done a Massachusetts special, Moakley, I guess he died. We worked for a guy named Brian Joyce, who was a state senator, running against Steve Lynch, who's still in Congress. Lynch was very well known, very well liked, and easily won the, the primary. But we did what I thought was really good mail for Joyce, including a lot of attack pieces on Lynch. And the next day, I get a phone call, and it's his wife, Margaret, saying, you know, we love what you did. Come up and talk to us. We want to hire you. And, you know, it was good validation of like, you do a good job. People will notice you, you can grow from that. In those early days, you mentioned rolling over some of the clients you had from your previous firms when you started Mission Control, but also uh, nervous times. The eye always looks at the horizon for the next thing. Was there a client or a campaign that you worked in that first year or two, uh, something that came in the door, something that you landed that you realized, well, maybe this is all coming together? So uh, there were, I mean, there was a couple. So when we started, we had a couple races, but the, the two that I, this would have been 2001, was... Tom Swazi, who now is a member of Congress, but at the time was running for county executive in Nassau County, and then a guy named Marty Markowitz, both of whom won. Marty was the Brooklyn Borough President for lots of years. But then right after that, I don't know if every company can, but I can easily project how Mission Control got going, which is the first big client we signed for what would have been 2022 was a guy named Tim Bishop, who at the time was the provost of Southampton College, who got in very late to run in, I think it was New York one then. Felix Grucci, right? Is this the Felix Grucci seat? Famed Grucci Fireworks Company. Grucci was, you know, well-known figure on Long Island. No one wanted to run against him. And so Tim got in as compared to what campaigns are now. I remember Tim getting in in like May 02 for a November election. Tim gets in, we sign it. He goes on to win in 2022, which I think was a year we only won three or four seats. If from like the mid 90s to 2006, 
were really known for both parties only switching a few seats back and forth, right? The Republicans took control in 94, and we really only swapped three to seven seats or so. Beating a guy like Gucci, who had won overwhelmingly two years before, was huge. And then right afterwards, we signed a woman named Melissa Bean, who had run in 02, came closer than people thought, but was still not, no one was taking seriously that she could win the race, even though that, that district was changing. And signed on with her, she went on to win in 04. 02, there were, you know, I don't remember how many, but four or five people who won. Most of those through redistricting, you know, Bishop won. And then 2004, I don't think we won that many seats at all, but Melissa had won a big race. Maybe after Bishop, definitely after Melissa, I could see their trajectory. The phone calls were coming. Our first office was like in the back of an industrial park. My partner, Adnan's, his office doubled as the kitchen, a thousand square feet at most. At that point, we're like, oh, we can get a real office and there's a future. I do think of all the people I've worked with, I think maybe you are, you know, have maybe the best network or one of the most well-liked people I'm aware of. You sort of have very big networks. Everybody likes you. Everybody likes working with you. I, there, there has to be something that you, I mean, some of this is probably just innate in your DNA. I get that. But do you have anything that you do that's maybe a little different? Are you, do you have a spreadsheet? Are you, uh, do you have Rolodexes? Or is, is there something that, that you do, uh, you know, on the networking front or to keep in front of people or to keep people in front of you that maybe the rest of us aren't doing? For years, going back to my direct response days, I would just try to have coffee, drinks, lunch, whatever, with anyone who I could get to come in front of me. For a long time, it was me instigating a lot of it, right? So anyone at a committee, anyone who was a manager, anyone who was a finance director, I would talk to. I would also obviously help anybody who needed help finding a job. We've all been there. It is a hard business to grow yourself in without some context, something we would love to fix. So anyone who calls anytime would do whatever I can to put them in front of people to make recommendations, get them a job if possible. But it really was just a series of calls, phone calls from the time the election ended, particularly back in the 90s and the early 2000s. Campaigns didn't really start to the calendar year. So if it was a 2002, you know, most of the candidates who ran got in that year, right? A few exceptions, but, you know, not like now where campaigns are two years long. So try to spend as much of the off year. I lived in Connecticut this whole time. So it would be taking a trip to DC and trying to fill up, you know, lunch, coffee, 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 drinks, dinner, three, four days, three, four, five days a month, at least, and then use the rest of the time calling and talking to people. And anytime you do that, you tend to meet more people, right? You tend, Anytime you go have coffee, you probably walk out with whoever you had coffee with saying, well, you should talk to so-and-so. And eventually you build a network. Direct mail is probably a little less understood in a lot of ways in other communications. Everybody sees TV ads through the course of a day. People see digital ads in front of them for all sorts of things. I think direct mail and the, the purpose of direct mail, the strategy behind direct mail is probably less well understood than most of what goes on in politics. What are your general rules of thumb about how direct mail you should be viewed, should be best utilized in campaigns? So I started doing direct mail essentially in 1995. Starting then through yesterday, even today, I heard at least once a week that direct mail is a dying business. 
right, is a dying entity, really hasn't actually been any less dead than it was 20 years ago. So unlike media and polling and a lot of these other things, which have changed dramatically in 20 years, where direct mail has actually been much more resilient. Right. And look, the advantage direct mail is always going to have. Look, it's not TV. TV is still the dominant means of which we communicate. Could be changing in 20 years. But now TV, including some digital offshoots and cable offshoots, is the dominant way we communicate. The thing about mail is we know who you are. We know enough about you to make some informed judgments about what we want you to do. And we can then put stuff in front of you. And nowadays in such a crazy media world and such a crazy digital world, being able to get something to the voter, even if it's less effective than a TV, getting a TV ad to that voter, we're the only ones who can claim we can do that. So backing up, Mail is different on different campaigns. And when I started, we were doing far more local campaigns. You know, some of the first races I did were small Jersey city freeholder, town councils, a lot of Long Island town councils, some of the Long Island stuff we still do. And those are all direct mail races with some cable, but direct mail is the dominant medium. And, and therefore, you kind of mail everybody and treat it almost like TV. What has really improved in the last 20 years is the targeting, really through 2005 to 2015, I think we have figured out how to figure out who voters are, figure out enough about what we perceive to be their partisan leanings, likelihood to vote, things like that, that make mail very efficient. It's not perfect. There are people we can't talk to and we're having to make guesses about. We know a lot more about voters now than we did when we started. We have voter files now. Back then, voter files were on index cards. Well, talk a bit about how you targeting look like on an average race in 95, 96, 97, when you're learning the craft. For the most part, back then, what you really only had access to, the partisanship of the voter in a state that allowed registered voters by party. You know, when I first started, the vast majority of what I did was Northeast, Eastern Seaboard. Almost all of those places are partisan registered. And then we knew your age and your gender and where you live. A lot of the targeting was geographic. We used, uh, which still exists, we just don't use it as much, thing called NCEC, National Committee for an Effective Congress, really did a good job of precinct by precinct, ranking precincts in terms of their partisan leanings. So we would use the combination of what I'd call the big data, the partisanship, the gender, the age, coupled with here are the precincts that likely contain swing voters, here are the precincts that likely contain base voters, and use those two to overlap. And obviously the problem is swing voters and base voters do live in every precinct. So there's a lot of places, particularly on a congressional race or a Senate race, where you can't mail everybody. You had to pick and choose what precincts you wanted to use. What really had changed in the last 15 years was we took that geographic data and we applied it to every voter. And eventually now we have a range of every voter in the country of who we think you are. And we can use complicated math equations to figure out if you should get mail or not and what mail you should get and what mail would drive you to vote or what mail would drive you to vote for our candidate. Is there a model, a score, an analytics tool that has come online in the last cycle or two that really sort of knocked your socks off that if you think if only the Ed PV in in 1995 knew that this was going on, is, is there something out there that's maybe symbolic of just how far the targeting and the industry has come? So there are a couple of things. One, we're getting very good at persuasion. I, I think we're getting very good at persuasion models, meaning finding messages that work with voters, being able to test it and say, 
and essentially come back with a list of these 400,000 voters are most moved by this message. And therefore, we can put together a eight-piece mail program that delivers this message to this audience over and over and increase our vote share. So an example, in this year, in 2020, we were doing uh, Medicaid expansion in a couple states. And the charming Republican governors, of course, did not want to expand Medicaid. So they put it on the ballot, and this is in Oklahoma, in the middle of June, as the pandemic is at its height, they put Medicaid expansion. There's now the capacity to not just model, not just find out who are persuadable voters, but actually go in online test the mail pieces to see what works, right? So we're going into COVID and we have no idea, you know, how does this change the way voters react and what are they looking for? And what is it in this case that's gonna really convince them to go out and vote, even though they're not allowed to leave their homes and having the ability to kind of real-time test messages uh, was crazy and, and very exciting. Is it as simple to say the 2020 cycle saw an explosion, had the most mail we've ever seen, if for no other reason, because of the uh, increase in vote by mail? Is that is the correlation that simple that as there's more vote by mail happening, that the amount of mail, the mail budgets were, were increasing accordingly? Yeah, I mean, I, I, 2020, particularly on the Democratic side, everything increased dramatically. The Trump effect was that campaigns were raising money at astronomical levels. We were involved in a lot of the big Senate races. So we saw, obviously, some of it was vote by mail. Some of it was that, you know, campaigns raised a lot more money. Some of it was vote by mail. Some of it was also, I think, their campaigns are getting a good commitment to making sure, like, look, we're all, TV is the most important thing. I've always said that TV is the most important or the number one way to communicate with voters. However, I've never worked on a campaign that won that didn't do everything well. That if you're going to win the campaign, you do TV, but you also have to do mail, you have to do digital, and you have to do TV. And I think campaigns are really putting a commitment into turnout and GeoTV and things like that, where mail plays a huge role in. Part of it was BBM and doing chase and things like that. However, a lot of what we do from the direct mail side is we do a ton of voter ap application stuff too. So one of the things that happened in a bunch of states is they were sending out applications, you know, which meant we didn't have to do that. We could spend more time getting people to return their ballots, which is fine. It's just shifting what we were, you know, using mail for. You mentioned being involved in a lot of Senate races. You worked in Senate races. If you go to your your website, it feels like you know one out of six or seven members of the U.S. Senate of the Democratic of the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate are are mission control clients. You've worked on presidential races as, as well. Uh, what is different about working in a big state or a presidential race or a, a statewide race where there is these ballooning budgets? How is mail different? How is your job as a mail consultant and mail strategist different? I view our job on campaign that we have kind of two different hats on the campaign. One is as part of the strategic team, regardless of what happens with mail, part of our job is to be part of what is the daily strategy? You know, what is the press strategy? What is the targeting strategy? What is the way we win the campaign, regardless of medium, and then playing a role with the other consultants in developing that. I've always viewed mail on any big race. That includes congressional, but definitely Senate, definitely presidential. We're about what are small things that need to happen that we can do. So turnout usually on a Senate race becomes a big part of what you do with direct mail. Chasing absentee ballots, in some cases, getting people to vote by absentee. We do a lot working with the modeling people to find where are some really tight niches of people 
that we need to find that are not the difference between 40 and 52%, but the difference between 49 and 50, right? If TV is about getting the race to 50-50, we want mail to be about how do we find those few hundred thousand votes that get us over the top. So it's really about finding on the persuasion side, it's finding small levers, finding small pockets of people where if we can just do a couple points better, it makes the math add up. And then on the turnout side, it's finding those pockets of people who would not vote if they don't get reminders. And is there a race or two? It doesn't have to be in the 2020 cycle, but where you think that that you and Mission Control and your colleagues have done something a little off the beaten path, uh, a little creative uh, that, that maybe actually didn't make the difference in a close race. We just spent a, a very aggressive December working for John Ossoff. And one of the things that I think we did and, and that was very smart, again, I want to say it was the difference. The, the thing about the Georgia runoff, particularly on uh, applied more to John because he was in a one-on-one race in November as opposed to Warnock, who was in a 20-person race, was we had an actual election day that showed where our vote was and what we had to change if we wanted to flip essentially the you know one and a half points we needed to get over the top. And what we saw was that we really under, I don't know if we underperformed, but we got killed relative to early voting Democrats on early in-person, right? In Georgia, you can vote by mail, you can vote early in-person in the election. And so the early person was a place we lost and that we thought we could have made a difference. My partner, Marin, who I will give credit to, uh, who really drove this, you know, we went and went to every 160 counties in Georgia and told them exactly where you could go to vote in person, which doesn't sound that, but to be able to figure out every in-person place, you know, they change them all the time. They're complicated. The hours are different. The rules are different. And be able to tell everybody in the county, here's where you go to vote in person. I think the biggest, I I could have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure the biggest change from November to January 5th was the vote we won for early in person. The inclination could have been just to make the same mail piece go to all 160 counties as opposed to having 160 iterations that were tailored to each each yeah. locality. What almost everyone would do, and we have done it plenty, so I'm not casting version, is you put on, find out where you vote, go to a website, right? Which is a perfectly reasonable thing that we do all the time too. Uh, but putting in, I think putting in the extra work and credit to the campaign, it costs more to do this. You know, I, I do think, you know, was helpful. As we talked about, Mission Control represents numerous members of the Senate caucus, governors, House members, Democratic institutions. So we've we've just scratched the surface here on, on some of the specifics, Ed, but just a couple of macro questions as we wind down. If there's someone who's a young person or somebody early in their career, maybe that campaign operative who's bounced around to two or three or four campaigns, uh, but somebody who has an itch or an inclination that maybe the direct mail business uh, is is right for them, uh, what is your advice on how they should start thinking about it? Are there concrete things that somebody can do to start getting ahead of the curve a little bit and making themselves a little bit sharper in terms of putting on a direct mail hat in the near future? Step one is go work in a few campaigns, get some experience. I think I said early on, I don't think there's anything more important in anything, including polling TV, definitely direct mail, than having an attention to detail. You know, we have a great staff at Mission Control. We have, I think, done a very good job of keeping a lot of the same people year to year because we have found good people. We want to keep them. But the interweaving theme for all of them is these are people who sweat the details, who care about punctuation, who care about making sure that stuff that goes to clients is looked at and proved who want to double check 
voter files who want to double check budgets. You just can't replace that, right? At the end of the day, for all the work we do, we still work for clients and clients lose confidence when there are mistakes, when there are little things, regardless of how good a job you are, regardless of how many great ideas you have. If you're not taking care of the little things, the big things never matter. So the advice to anybody is just double down, pay attention to details, organize. The other thing I will say, which makes me sound like the old man I am, but there's nothing that drives me more nuts in the business than people who don't respond to emails, people who don't respond to texts. If you're starting off in campaigns, respond to emails, respond to texts, even ones you don't think are that important. Somebody sent that for a reason. They probably want a response. It is not a major thing, but I think it's a really important thing that anyone you talk to, you got to make sure they understand they matter and you care about their opinion. You don't have to agree with it, but that you take the time to at least respond. And I think maybe actually goes back to some of what we've talked about, how you maybe are wired a little different or do things a little different that have allowed you to build a reputation is so hands-on. One more thing about mail. Sometimes people, I'll talk to people who are have an interest in being pollsters, but maybe think that polling is not for them because they're not an MIT math guru. Similarly, perhaps there are people out there who you think that they would have some ability and some interest in mail, but think that maybe mail is not for them because they're not graphic design experts, or they're not super creative visionaries. Can mail be the right niche for somebody, even if they're not somebody with a, an overwhelming artistic vision? Yeah. I mean, the, the bulk of the people who would work in politics who come to Mission Control, uh, I don't think anyone are artists, right? The, we have a ton of artists, a lot have been with us a long time, who are phenomenal artists. They didn't come from politics. They came from art. People who come from politics, if you know something about art, that's great, but it is it is nothing we would even ask about. What we do care about, again, is the attention to detail and the thing. And look, you, you know, it, just with anything in politics, you got to be willing to work long hours. You got to give up August, September and October of every other year to, you know, get things done. Mail is a, in, in a lot of ways, TV, I'm sure getting a TV ad out the door is harder than getting a mail piece out the door. But there are a lot of steps in getting a mail piece out the door. And we do a lot more mail pieces than anyone does TV ads. So if you're willing to work hard and triple down on paying attention to detail, do those things, you can work them out. That being said, I don't think I've ever hired anyone who came to me that all they wanted to do was work in mail. Most of the people want to work in politics and are perfectly happy to work in mail. But I, I haven't met anyone whose lifelong dream is to send junk mail to people's homes. Ed, your daughter, Annie, uh, who's uh, in her 20s now, I believe, but has competed at very high levels in the Paralympics and equestrian events. Uh, do you think you've picked up something from her, seeing her work ethic, her uh, achievements in that field? Yeah, I would say myself and probably every, we have two other kids and, and my wife probably all picked up from her. You know, it is hard to imagine. She, she was born partially paralyzed. She started riding horses as a way to therapy. She soon, you know, developed a knack for competing and then started competing for the Paralympic team. And then in 2014, she went to the World Games, 16, she went to the Olympics and, and 18, she also went back to the uh, World Games. It's hard to find anyone who is more driven, even at such a young age, who was a taskmaster, demanded we stayed on schedule, the whole family, but particularly on her horse stuff, drove eventually, first, my wife and her would drive an hour and a half every day back and forth to train. They trained about 90 miles from our house 
Then once she got her license, she would drive back 90 miles almost every day to train. The amount of effort and stuff that went into it was amazing. It was great to then get to go all around the world to watch her compete. Rio in 16 was a, a crowning uh, moment, but you know it, you get the experience, but you really see behind the scenes how hard it is for any Olympic athlete to make, and, you know, how few slots there are and people competing and all and everything you have to go through and all the physical shape, you know, she rode horses. So you also, the physical shape of the horse is a big deal. Amazing thing to watch. Just a couple last questions here. And this is a question I borrowed from the economist, Tyler Cowan. And to paraphrase him, he might talk about the Ed PV production function, which is there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who network well, a lot of people who work hard. Uh, but what do you think it is about you, Ed, that has made you, uh, what's unique about you, Ed? What's different about you uh, that you think you've been able to be so successful? I don't know if it's unique, but one definitely would spend the time I definitely spend the time with anyone older or younger in politics or to get to know people, to you know, spend the time to get to know people, not just for business, but you know, again, I spend a lot of my time networking, helping them rather than myself. But over the time, you know, have spent, uh, you know, spend hours, we'll give anyone the time of day, take calls morning, noon, and night, return calls and emails. Uh, as I said, you know, one of my central rules is to keep that email inbox down as low as possible. Look, I also think, you know, I've, I've always, I, I, when we started doing direct mail 2000, we definitely decided we wanted our stuff to look different, to have not just a different look to it, but have a kind of holistic approach to strategy in the direct mail stuff that we've stuck with. We try to limit the number of topics and stuff and, and keep really micro-focused direct response, kind of turn that into a philosophy that I don't know if it's that different than what other people do, but it's something we drive. And look, I, I, you know, I think, you know, I've always been somebody who has been willing to speak up on every campaign we're on, regardless of whether it's about mail or not, speak up about your the polls, speak up about the TV ads. I think that has, you know, hopefully given other consultants and candidates confidence that agree or disagree, they're going to hear my opinion and they can keep that in consideration when we're making our strategy. You've been on the road a lot for years, for decades at this point. Do you have any travel tips, any travel hacks to make the life a little bit less of a grind for those of us who find ourselves on the road in a normal situation so frequently? So two things. One, and, I, and this is a true philosophy thing that I think could be you know, a, a, a huge debate. I am a big fan of being at the airport in plenty of time to not rush, get a drink, get some food, make some calls, spend some emails before you get on the I am always at least an hour plus before my flight, unless there's a, a circumstance. I know a lot of people, particularly in the DC area, who are running through the airport at last call to get on the flight. I don't know how you do that. You know, it is it is definitely keeps my blood pressure low to not have the stress. The other thing that I have learned, so I my crowning achievement in pan, uh, is pandemic is somehow American Airlines gave me the last thirty thousand miles I needed to be a million mile flyer. But I spent way too much time in my early part of my career just picking the best flight and not picking an airline. And even American Airlines, which was US Air, which was the airline I used to fly, I, I do think I would be much higher status had I, in the early part of my career, picked an airline. So for good or ill, there's got to be an airline wherever you live that is the dominant airline. Pick it, live with it, take connections to long, you know, West Coast destination if you need, but pick your airline. 
Yeah, well, those are those are hot button controversial topics among those of us who travel a lot. But uh, I like it. I like both of those. But let's end on a recommendation, Ed. What's something, a, a book, a product, a movie, a television show, a recipe, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? So, well, two things. One, my big hobby, my wife and I and our oldest daughter particularly are all big in cycling. We cycle all around the world. We cycle a bunch of political people across Iowa every other year on Ragbri. So I would always recommend that first, a family hobby. My son, who's our middle child, and I have uh, bond a lot over subpar action movies and all the Star Wars, the Marvel. I would recommend highly any of the new Marvel TV shows, all the movies, but you know, it, it is something that we over the last 15 years have bonded about and still spend a lot of time talking and texting back and forth. Really appreciate your time today, Yad. A, you know, a fun conversation. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.